0: issue for all women hello and welcome to episode 111 of the standard issue pod i'm mickey noonan and while i never thought i'd say this i am robert peston's face <laughs>
1: mm. i'm hannah dunleavy and i'm fucking furious
0: and rightly so mm.
2: and i'm jen offord and i think this bush telegraph my last one for a while is gonna
0: be spicy Well, let's find out. Mm. Later on, journalist and folk music fiend Hazel Davis chats to folk musician and ethnomusicologist Dr. Faye Heald about
1: how the pandemic
0: is affecting musicians and the inventive ways in which they're surviving.
1: I chat to Dr. Alison McGregor about her new book, Sex Matters, and how COVID-19 presents an opportunity to change how we conduct health studies and collect statistics.
2: I chat to Meryl Davis Chief executive of Reengage about respecting your elders and what we can do to help those who are socially distancing right now. And in Jenny off the blocks as ever, I am
1: talking women's sport. Some of us actually are socially distancing right now. <laughs> and in Dunleavy does disaster, we wonder what shape is a cigar as we watch Plan Nine from outer space.
3: <sighs>
1: but first, I mean it's probably best just to get to it.
0: It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q stink
1: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we ask all the important questions. So, Jen, as a former civil servant, just to have the password for that Twitter account. (laughs)
0: Oh, what a glorious 15 minutes
1: that was. So, yeah, I mean, fuck. Um, I don't even know if it's going to be possible to articulate how epically, seethingly, volcanically angry I am at our government right now. I'm not sure I've ever felt this angry at anyone about anything. And if I did, at least then I'd have been able to meet a mate for a pint to talk about it. Or maybe I can do that now. Who knows? Not me. (laughs) I'm just one of those twats who stayed home, protected the NHS and saved lives. And didn't see a soul I knew for months. Twat. Because clearly I didn't love my family enough to drive cross-country to endanger their lives. What a twat. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> it would have been almost impossible to imagine before the weekend that there would ever be an issue that seemed to unite Twitter. But Boris Johnson did just that when he refused to sack special adviser and pound shop Nosferatu Dominic Cummings for blatantly, unapologetically and seemingly perpetually flouting the very lockdown rules he helped create. The nation let out a collective howl of rage at our, I'm going to say, craven cunt of a Prime Minister fair pouring out some frankly heartbreaking stuff about lost loved ones horrible circumstances and darkest fears what I found especially upsetting is that some of those people were my friends and I'm telling you they do not put their shit in the street lightly but having just been told by the man who is supposed to be in charge that their pain their grief their stress was a result of their own bad choices they had had enough as have, it seems, millions and millions of us. Social distancing rules may have prevented Johnson visiting every house in the nation to hit us round the face with his cock, <laughs> oh, but horrific. the effect <laughs> was much the same. It was an insult to our sacrifices, but also to our intelligence. He thinks this is political, but it goes way, way deeper than that. And so Johnson is dead in the water as a political entity and as a fully functioning human being. People are not going to move on when the next news cycle begins. No one is going to say, Remember when we weren't allowed to see Dad when he was dying? What was that about again? Probably Keir Starmer and his donkeys. I'm off to vote Johnson. When we think about the babies we didn't hold, the funerals we didn't go to, the friends we couldn't help, the weddings we couldn't attend, the businesses we couldn't save, we will remember him and that he told us, More for you.
2: Can't. I'm a bit emotional today and that almost made me cry um yeah. yeah where to start where to start
1: i mean it's worth saying we're recording this on monday in our red hot houses on a bank holiday i don't know if the boo for boris is going to go ahead tomorrow at 8 p.m which would have been your yesterday also now we've seen that dominic cummings is apparently going on television to address us uh, and answer questions i mean i'm hoping the first one will be why are you a cunt <laughs> um, but maybe, maybe uh, he will have resigned by now. But I still, I actually don't think this story is about Dominic Cummings anymore. This story is about Boris Johnson. And his cabinet. And his cabinet and the contempt with which they are holding the entire rest of the country.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that everyone knows that the lie is worse than the act itself. Yeah everyone knows that the way like if you fuck up you can bring yourself back from the brink depending on how you then deal with it and they their way of dealing with it is saying we don't give a fuck what you think p.s we think you're cocks (laughs) like like, yeah
0: Yeah. i mean we don't care could have been a tagline for the tory party for many many decades now but they they've never made it quite so explicit have they he
2: said it They've gaslit an entire country. Dominic Cummings actually said to reporters outside his house, who cares about looking good? I don't care what you think. That means I don't care what you, the public, think. And he fucking should care. And the problem with all this is that they've forgotten that they fucking work for us, not the other
1: way Mm round. Absolutely. I mean, you could tell it was a lie from the outset just because they kept referring to his child as a toddler. And he's not a toddler, he's four. So they're already trying to create some mitigating circumstances which don't exist, and say, "Oh, but this, you know, but that." But like I say, I, I mean, I actually retweeted some of my friends' horrible circumstances into our timeline. If you want to go and have a look at them, not you two, obviously. And they dealt with death, with cancer, with financial hardship, with with childcare, and now they are literally being told, "Why did you do that?" Like the rules are flexible everybody thinks their circumstances are exceptional everybody thinks that they're different to everybody else but I actually think that being in charge means that you you should obey the laws more than everybody else because you're supposed to set a fucking example yeah we're supposed to be able to look to them in last week's bush
0: telegraph I talked about the NHS surcharge which just to remind you is a charge that immigrant workers in the UK including international NHS staff must pay on top of taxes to use NHS services Home Secretary Priti Patel had waived it for migrant health workers who had had their visas extended until October, dealing with the current crisis. She had promised to review it for all other migrant health workers, then promptly reneged on that promise. Going back on a promise to do the right thing? How very Johnsonian. Because, yeah, Boris Johnson isn't unfamiliar with U-turns, but aptly for these, wait for it, unprecedented Mm. times... He's about face to a less morally repugnant stance for once. One that even has a faint whiff of basic compassion. We truly are living through history. <laughs> uh, a quick timeline. Last Wednesday at Prime Minister's Questions, Johnson was clear. It was entirely right for people from overseas working in the NHS and social care sectors to pay a £400 visa surcharge, which rises to 624 quid come October, to use the NHS themselves. By Thursday, though... Following a lot of pushback from all opposition parties and several Tory MPs telling the PM that the policy was mean-spirited and immoral, Johnson announced that NHS staff and care workers would be exempt from the controversial visa surcharge. What a difference a day makes. Well, let's fucking hope so right now, eh? (laughs) Labour leader Keir Starmer hailed the reversal, a victory for common decency. And he's right. It is irrefutably a good thing. Although I am, of course, going to stop short of saying well done, Boris. (laughs) Because one act of common decency does not undo a career of dangerous lies and deceit. And as previously discussed, he is back confirming that particular trademark with a vengeance. Also, it's worth pointing out that other workers currently previously and no doubt in the future keeping the nhs up and running you know delivery drivers child minders refuse collectors will still face the nhs surcharge and now in this tale of u-turns the piece de resistance and perhaps a quiz question for your next family zoom jeremy hunt who was health secretary in 2015 was among the leading voices calling for a reversal on the nhs surcharge for no points whatsoever which health secretary bought in the fee in 2015
2: um so hang on a minute i don't think i know all the facts about this so these migrants have to pay a surcharge to use the nhs yeah even though they live here they work here and they pay taxes here yes that seems fair
0: it doesn't seem (laughs) fair (laughs) okay Uh, also yes
2: well in desperate need of some childcare, so you can actually start doing your job again <laughs> Just nip up to your parents' estate
0: in County Donegal.
2: Exactly. Well, not to worry because the end of homeschooling is nigh. Boris Johnson announced on Sunday that, despite an outpouring of concern from councils, teachers, and their unions, he intends to begin to reopen schools from June the first. That's next Monday, right? It is. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: So the policy, which was floated in the PM's baffling speech on May the 11th, will initially see reception infants alongside years one and six return to school, followed by some contact for years 10 and 12 as of the 15th of June.
0: Some contact seems a really (laughs) dodgy phrase to use, doesn't
2: it? Yeah, it's, it's not ideal. Johnson said the reopening of schools would happen in a way that is as manageable and as safe as possible. That's a bit...
1: I don't like that. As manageable as as possible. possible.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that really...
1: I mean, given the possibilities, I don't know. I'd just like it to be done
0: responsibly, legally and with integrity.
2: (laughs) Mm. Ah. In the run-up to the announcement, there was widespread criticism of the proposed move from teachers last week, one of whom wrote to her MP, Julian Sturdy, that's a good name, to say it would cause suffering and death, said the BBC. Teaching union NASUWT said it was unconvinced that reopening schools is either appropriate or practical. Meanwhile, former Ofsted chief inspector Sir Michael Wilshaw said that while he accepted some children had regressed during lockdown, attempting to socially distance five-year-olds would be like, and I quote, herding cats, Um, which sounds pretty accurate to me. But hang on a minute, before you get all but government said care homes were safe about it, this might not yet happen. The formal decision will be taken as part of the government's three-weekly review of lockdown, which must take place before Thursday, and it depends on the R number in it. Hang on, it's almost like he didn't actually tell us anything new, he just made it look like he did to deflect attention from something else, again. It's not actually new, okay. is it? That's literally what he said on May the 11th.
1: Yeah. What
2: the fuck? But no. Jen,
1: look over here. Look over here. <laughs> look over here. Don't look over There's there. A dog look over in here. the
2: playground. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Honestly, if you are the government's advisor, you don't have to look after your own child. You can drive them and your disease across the country for help childcare. But if you're a teacher, you've got to change the pants of a five-year-old who's pissed themselves While maintaining a distance of two fridges. I mean, good luck with that one. Yeah. Does anybody want a bit of good news?
0: Yes, please. I don't believe there is any.
1: (laughs) Well, despite the chat that holidays might soon become a thing again, you may still be reluctant to cram yourself onto a plane, train or beach just yet. But if you start planning a future holiday, say next year or the year after, you'll be doing your mental health the world of good. Now, colleagues, if you're wondering whether I'm saying this to justify the fact that a few weeks ago I started planning a road trip around the western states of America for 2022, the answer is categorically maybe. Hmm. But National Geographic last week informed me that I'm doing exactly the right thing, with several academic studies showing that anticipation about an experience rather than a consumable thing improves your well-being. Planning in advance can also improve your feelings about your finances, whether or not you ever take the trip. Academics at Cornell University also found that if you do take a long planned trip, you enjoy it more than a spontaneous holiday because of that sweet, sweet delayed gratification. And I've got to add, in the time of coronavirus, you can fill hours with that shit. You know what to do, people. Lovely stuff. My
0: good news once again comes courtesy of the hardest of all sheep, goats. Hooray for goats. <laughs> Board of business meetings, sneak in a goat for shits and giggles. Need to liven up that weekly family Zoom chat? Add a goat! Know what brightens up a Zoom quiz with your pals? Goats. What the fuck am I talking about? Well, basically, you can book real live actual goats to join you on Zoom calls. It's a thing. I kid you not. Come on, guys. I kid you not. Mickey, why did you do
1: this for Jen's last week? Why are you telling this rather than just it suddenly appearing and going... (laughs) 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 Good point. We could have had a goat on the bush telegraph today that's who we're replacing you on maternity cover with it's just going to be a goat going fair enough sounds like a fair substitute to me (laughs)
0: farmer doc mccarthy of cronkshaw fold farm in lancashire is hiring out goats at the bargain price of a fiver for 10 minutes all of the goats have distinct personalities described on the farm's website which i'm sure you want to know and that is www.cronkshawfoldfarm.co.uk mary for instance will bring ambivalence a limited attention span and it's totally fine peeing in front that's me me, please
2: that's what i want
0: (laughs) whereas terence promises a genuine desire for chin scratches a deep interest in what you have to say and soft velvety ears
2: well i've got some good news as well guys Thwarted quiz contestant Mohamed Shahalan, who was denied a cool $10,000 for mispronouncing an answer on a Singaporean radio quiz, finally got what he deserved last week following an unlikely intervention. Shahalan was told by Gold905 that he'd answered incorrectly due to his pronunciation of the name Tony Hadley, he of Spandau Ballet fame, on the Celebrity Name Drop quiz. After being told he had guessed 13 of the 14 required celebrities correctly, Shahalan questioned the decision when another contestant was announced as the winner using the exact same answers, but was fobbed off by the station. After then finding Hadley's manager's details, he sent him an email, and he was delighted when he received a video message from the crooner endorsing his pronunciation of the name, albeit perhaps with a slight accent. The station, which initially offered Shahalan $5,000 as a goodwill gesture, was eventually forced to relent and pay up the full ten grand after the story gathered momentum in the wake of Hadley's intervention. Tony, you are indeed gold. More news,
1: possibly goats, next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they?
0: Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week, which may soon be replaced with a boomerang of me banging my head against a brick wall. In this week's brief but dramatic video, I represent all women's rights to bodily autonomy and access to healthcare, and the brick wall represents the Trump administration. He likes walls. Why this time? Well, in a letter to the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, John Barsett, the acting administrator for the US Agency for International Development, USAID, called on the UN to stay focused on life-saving interventions and not include abortion as an essential service because no abortion has ever been a life-saving intervention except for nearly all of them but I am of course referring to the life of the woman which as we've established many times isn't worth a hill of beans for the majority of republicans. Arkila Radak Rishnan, president of the Global Justice Centre, said the letter was a disgraceful and dangerous attack on essential health services at the worst possible time. No matter what the US government says, abortion is a fundamental human right and reproductive care is always essential, including during a pandemic. At a time when countless lives are at risk, the US has yet again decided to put its efforts into restricting health care instead of expanding it. My head hurts. That was me saying that, not her. But I imagine she
1: feels similar. Yeah. Still, Trump had a nice game of golf yesterday. So all is well in America. Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially. And also that there are probably some very... Worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so, how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us. If you're furloughed and you're at home, or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us equally you could spend this time spreading the news about standard issue i know a lot of you already do this but if you see anyone on twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time just get in there and say standard issue thank you all for your help and support at this time and that includes everyone who already supports us on patreon
2: i'm joined on the phone by meryl davis ceo of the charity Reengage. hello meryl Hello, Jen.
3: How are you getting on? You all right? I'm all right. I'm all right. was an organisation, we're all set up for this anyway because we had staff working from home, so we were able just to, to crack on with what we're doing. people I'm more worried about are the older people we work with. So we're a charity. We work right across Scotland, England and Wales, and we've actually been on the go for fifty five years. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. We we started out in the nineteen sixties as an organization where good young volunteers took older people out for tea. And it was the, the it, it was at a time when older people were people who'd actually lived through the First World War. It was that long ago. And afternoon tea was, you know, a special treat. And also, you know, I when I first got to know the organization, it also made me contemplate the fact that afternoon tea as a concept has changed so much and you know my grandparents generation would only have ever invited people into their house for tea they wouldn't have put lunch or dinner or supper or anything on the table for any non-family member it would have only been afternoon tea so afternoon tea was what you did with strangers and it grew and grew and grew and by the time I came along a couple of years ago the organization had 900 groups of volunteers picking up older people at their houses and taking them around to a volunteer home and having afternoon tea. And it was just the loveliest, loveliest thing. And the volunteers love it. They describe it as strangely addictive because actually (laughs) all of us have got an older person that we we miss or we love or we wished we'd known or we didn't love and wished we had or, you know, those, those complex relationships that we have in our lives. But we've all got one, we've all got an older person, and many of us have more than one, and then we lose them. So it's this beautiful organisation that brings people together in that way. But what I felt very strongly that I wanted to do was to keep our core of the tea parties, which are so lovely, but actually grow beyond the tea party and look at new activities. So our fundamental objective is to make sure that people have got an opportunity to develop a social life, whatever stage of life they're at. We work with people who are over 75, who live alone, and who are socially isolated. And quite often find it hard to get out. And they're usually people who turn around and they're the last one. So they've lost their significant other. They've lost their siblings. They've lost their friends. And a surprising number have lost their children. And they are absolutely alone. And that also is why the strangely addictive thing comes in. Because actually our volunteers know when they drop them back at their houses at the end of the tea party. The next time they see a living, breathing human being might be and they're getting them up for the next one. So it's powerful stuff, Mm -hmm. and it's all face-to-face, and it's all groups, and it's all the things we can't do now.
2: According to your website, there are 2.2 million over-75s living alone in this country. That's a huge number of households, and that's a huge amount of people impacted on by this. Now, my mum is not over 75, she's just under... She's 72, but she lives on her own, so there will be a lot of people in this in this sort of ballpark group who are doing social isolation, social distancing on their own, and also these are the people who are most vulnerable to this horrible virus. So how is this impacting on people?
3: Well, it's really tough, isn't it? And I mean, you know, for the people that we work with, um, we were offering that, that one social interaction, that one face-to-face, person-to-person interaction that people are having. And as you rightly say, you know, we've got its average age of 85, our older people. So they are absolutely the people who are the most vulnerable to the virus. They're the most vulnerable to lo- loneliness and social isolation anyway. And then they're really vulnerable to fraud and scams and all mm. sorts of frightening things that come with the kind of world that we're living in. So what we decided to do was simply, it was we had to say, well, we can't stop. We have to stop what we've always done, but we have to start doing something else and we have to do more. So what we immediately did was just make sure that all of the roughly 8,000 people that we work with at the moment... I've got a call, regular call or a regular something from one of our volunteers to make sure that that could carry on. And so, you know, we were able to make that switch because we've got these fantastic volunteers there ready to go. And then we said, right, we'll grow it and, and reach more people by phone. And when you get through, it's really interesting. So my parents would have been 87 this year, turn like 86 this year. And they were at that tail end, you know, they were 11 when the war ended. So they're that generation who who just get on with it and just manage with whatever happens and so there's a mix of people who say it's all right we've got through other things and then there's other people who are just scared you know if the the telly is your company and we all know what the telly is at the moment the telly is coronavirus 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 you know and just to watch that and then to see the news and to hear endlessly that it's older people who are worst affected Mm. and that you you know, die a horrible death alone, which is what the news says. That's horrendous for them.
2: Your sort of mission is to make sure that the over 75s are being heard, valued and engaged. It's interesting, really, that we get to a certain age and we're kind of written off. We don't have anything interesting or valuable to say anymore when actually you've got a lifetime of experiences and skills and and things to contribute. And I know someone who volunteered, I'm not actually sure if it was with Reengage or or another organisation, but volunteered and she used to go round to elderly persons households I don't know how often once a week maybe once every two weeks and just sort of sit with them and chat to them and she said she learned so much from this person because yeah. they did have so much experience to, to speak of and we don't really value that as a society and one of the things that I thought was horrific but also, kind of unsurprising, there was a story in the news a couple of weeks ago, which I'm sure you would have seen, where Dominic Cummings, the, the Prime Minister's special advisor, was quoted as saying something along the lines of, well, you know, if some old people die, who cares? Do the over-75s feel particularly undervalued at this time, do you think? Or, or is this just a constant state of play?
3: I would say that at any time, that age cohort feels undervalued and is undervalued and you're absolutely right there's a huge amount for people to offer and i think the important thing for organisations like us is to make sure that we're creating those opportunities for people to be valued and quite often there's a there's a sort of journey that you go on so your friend doing that befriending is brilliant because you you get to know people and you get to know them more and more and more and you get more and more of an understanding and it might take a little while for somebody to open up because people do they lose, you know we all do it we lose the ability to speak in, in normally or to you know we lose our ability to, to tell stories and that kind of thing because you get sucked into a life of loneliness and I think a lot of people are experiencing that now so I think that yes definitely there's that and I think that there's just a couple of true horrendous terrifying scandals the obvious one of, that we all know about is is what's happening to people who are dying because of the job that they do and the idea that that exists in those numbers in our country at this time but the other one is, yes, the overt nature of being dismissive of the importance of, of the older generation. But that's not new. And so that's a little bit different and it's a little bit more subtle. And of course, the other thing to celebrate, though, is the amazing community spirit that's come out of this. And so, you know, it, these circumstances do bring the best out of people as well. And so we have seen that. And, you know, we we advertise for um, volunteers to, to join our new service. I'm just inundated, absolutely inundated. Look at, you know, look at all the people that volunteer for the NHS and so on. So. You know, there is that too. And I think people do want to speak to people who, who need them. And as long as you can express that need well, then people will understand that actually, you know, this can really, they, you really are doing a massive service by speaking to somebody. Yeah, you know, I went along to one of our tea parties at my local group. And I was. it was a warm July day. And I was sitting with this older man. And, uh, you know, he was very bent, shoulders very, very bent. And he was wearing two fleeces as, you know, people of that generation that age do on a hot summer's day sometimes, you know. <laughs> and he was very frail. And we got talking and he was an ad man in the 60s. You know, he was Don Draper. He was London's, you know, guy doing advertising. And he had the stories you told and the things that he said. You, you know, you're in your mind, you sort of realise that you're talking to this person, you, that they look like an old man wearing two fleeces. And they are somebody really quite fascinating and We often miss the opportunity to get to know people at that stage of life. And then, you know, you read amazing obituaries and so on. But actually, there are people there who it's wonderful to spend time with now. So Mm. we believe in, in hearing about them now.
2: Absolutely. All those stories that, you know, all the historical events that people have lived through, you know, like you'd sort of like to think one day someone will be asking me, you know, granny, what was it like during the (laughs) COVID-19, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Rather than just like, oh, you're old, bore off, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really sad. And I do think that, yeah, that you're hugely undervalued. So how do you get people who are isolated? How do you
3: find people
2: to sort of (laughs) hook them up with (laughs) volunteers because that must be really challenging
3: yeah it is it's the biggest challenge and and you know because again you've got a group of people who are first of all you know you don't tend to identify as that you know we might say i'm lonely but you don't see a poster that says are you lonely and go do something about it Hmm. and there's a sort of steps that you have to go through to be that person who reaches out mostly though people come to us through various different channels that might be another charitable organization So they might be going along for a particular service from a charitable organisation and then they would come to us for the sort of social side of life. So they might be getting food or care or whatever from another organisation. Family members contact us. You know, we get calls from all over the world saying I live in Australia. My mother is 85 and widowed and, you know, stuck indoors all day. Can you help her? So we get families contacting about their older parents. We get things like social prescribing, you know. So the GPs have got link workers now, and so so we've got this network of, of staff and volunteers who have all of those relationships. So right across the country, we've got staff who are, who individually know all of those people in their in their own area. And you'd be surprised. There's all sorts of organisations that are working on this, and where, and there's this whole network that comes together, sort of a, around older people. So once one person's found them, they do get sort of looped in to other organisations. And then the issue then is sometimes those organisations lose their funding and fold and so on. And then suddenly our source of people dries up. So, you know, that's really sad when you see things like that happen.
2: As I said, my mum is not in the over-75s group, but she is... home on her own at the moment and I have so what I've done is I've taught her how to use google hangouts so that we can have uh, video chats and so that she can meet her granddaughter when her granddaughter's born which is you know that's a bit of a heartbreaking thing for me and for her And, and there'll be loads and loads of other people in a sort of similar situation at the moment so what other things can people do to help if they have an elderly person, either a family member or a neighbor or just someone that they're sort of aware of in the community, what kind of things can they do to help them at the moment, even if from a bit of a sort of arm's length situation
3: yeah well you know the thing is that at the moment there's lots and lots of support out there and I think one of the most important things is actually signposting people and making sure they know what's there and as you say you know I think a lot of family members are now teaching their older people how to use the internet more and and so on and you know I was very lucky my mother was at very, very, very good at learning technology, mm. and I gave her my old computer years ago, and she just took to it, you know. And um, she was she was excellent at it. But one of the things that I noticed with her as she got older was that she, you know, you live with all sorts of conditions, and one of the things that older people live with is what fundamentally ends up being not your mother's age, but older chronic grief. Mm. And so, here's the point where your social life is funerals. We all know that that eventually happens. And you're going along to funerals and you're hearing about your friend's death. And, you know, my mother was somebody who was very sociable, knew lots of people. And and you, you carry on. And then suddenly there's a big one. Suddenly somebody who really mattered or something that, that for some reason sort of drags you back into memories that you just can't come back out of. She, she rang me up one day and she said, I can't use Gmail. I just, I can't do it. I don't know what's going wrong, but it's just not working. And this is somebody who's really capable. And it was because somebody died. And so, you know, that's the funny thing about about working with people is remembering that actually what looks like a life in steady state because they sit in an armchair most of their life is not life in steady state at all actually you get to a certain stage in life and you've got multiple comorbidities you know you're going to have statistically you're going to have some combination of diabetes cancer early stage dementia all of these things that you are just statistically going to have so you've got all of that going on which would be huge for us right we'd be crushed if we had two or three of those at once and then you've also got that that sort of gradual loss of of your social circle wherever that social circle may be and so so life isn't in steady state at all and so learning new things isn't just about being not very modern you know it's actually that you're in quite an interesting sort of challenging Mm. moment in life actually oh god that's <laughs> so I depressed
2: you. Really I'm so sad. sorry. So, one of the things we can do then is to signpost people to things that can help them. So, if we have an elderly neighbour or, or, or family member or whatever, we can sort of, as you say, point out to people that services like reengage do exist and, and you know, there yeah. are people that they could be having a chat to. Because even, you know, with the best will in the world, again, my mum is probably not the right example to use because she does have lots of friends. She has an active social life and etc cetera, etc cetera. she's got loads of people she can talk to on the phone but if she was that bit older as you say and you know maybe there were less people around now then as much as I want to talk to her and like I can't talk to her all the time and it's probably quite nice for people to talk to other people as well as family members yes. And as you say, Absolutely. have a social life. So how do we get people linked up with you guys?
3: We, um, I mean, at the moment, we, we have a website with a phone number and then we have um, online forms as well. So you could literally, if your mother was over 75, uh, you could literally just pop onto our website and, and sign her up. I mean, we do uh, seek to work with people who are particularly isolated. So we'd say, you know, how many times a, a week um, is she talking to you, for example, and that sort of thing. But I think what's really magical about us in, in normal times is that is the group's. Because what it also means is that, you know, you come along to a group as an older person and you've got that peer to peer engagement. So that's really nice. And again, you know, speaking of families, I mean, my paternal grandfather, he moved in with my parents when he was really very old and he was very shy and he'd lived, he was born in 1902. uh, So he'd lived life in an era where he worked very hard and he had family. And I thought about it later and realised that he never had any friends. We didn't know about his friends. We never talked about Grandpa and his friends or anything, you know. I think he had family, and that was it. And there he was, living with my parents. And suddenly, he made a friend. And I and and it was Bert and Jack. And you walk in on them. I walked in on them one day, and they were sitting in their armchairs, moving their arms around. And I said, "What are you, what are you two up to?" And they said, "We're talking about scything." <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and they were talking about scything techniques and how to craft of people born in around 1900, right? but they made friends. They were really, really good friends. And seeing somebody who actually I'd never seen in a friendship relationship before actually make a friend and keep a friend till the day he died was a lovely, lovely thing to see. And there's something very special about being able to do that at a time in your life when you can't really get out and about. And then there's also a number of volunteers involved in the group. So then that gives you lots of people in your life. So you get, you know, a lot of the older people write to us and say, you know, I I didn't know anybody and now I've got a family and this all... you know, last year I had one, I had no birthday cards last year, none. And now I've got 15 cards up in my living room. And that's because I came along to your group. And I've got to know, you know, the hosts and the drivers and the and the other volunteers and the other people in the group and the kids of the people in the group. And, you know, they stroke the dog and the cat and all of that. So when it's happening in, in normal times, it's so magical and special. Right now we're doing this kind of emergency response of saying they must all get a call or they must all get a visit of some sort, be it a... You know, kind of knock and run, you know, talk to them from the gate, not actually go in. But going forward, realistically, I don't know when we're going to be able to have those groups again. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, it would be great if the the school started to open up and the nurseries and all of that and jobs started happening again. But realistically, as an organisation that puts together the most vulnerable group into groups, it's probably not going to be something that we can do for a very long time. You don't come out of a pandemic into a flu season. Mm-hmm. And start putting five-year-olds in groups. So, you know, we've got to really start thinking about how we can create more of those important relationships for the older people. So, you know, that's another just exciting challenge for us to just make sure that we are creating as much as possible of that sense of having a network again when you haven't got one at all. Oh,
2: gosh. Well, that, yeah, that is going to be
3: hugely challenging, isn't it? We like that sort of challenge, though. I mean, we're rising to the challenges at the moment. And I think, you know, 1,800 people have signed up for our to be volunteers with us fairly quickly. And I think as long as people understand the value, it's not a question of, well, if they if they've already getting a call from somebody else, then why should I call them? Because that's not the point. The point is we're creating a network for mm-hmm. them. So you know, I do Tuesdays, you do Wednesdays maybe nobody can do Thursday, but then John will do Fridays, is a really nice way of thinking about it for a huge mass of people right across the country. And if we can start building that and start making that work, then it's just up to us to manage the logistics.
2: How do we help you then to do this? Because you've got a huge task ahead of you and, and, you know, we should absolutely be helping you do this. I assume that as well as volunteers, you rather like payments of cold, hard cash.
3: We love a payment of cold hard cash. Yes, we love donations and it means a lot to us at the moment. And I know that, you know, a lot of people are considering their financial situation and so on. But I know other people are saying, well, look, I'm saving on commuting. So it would have cost me eight quid to go to into town today. So I'll, you know, do five times eight and give that to a don- as a donation. That makes a big difference. So, yeah, definitely they can donate via our website. And volunteers are fabulous. And especially at this time... Yes, we're going to have individuals who are going to be making calls, but we're looking for calling group coordinators. And so we are actually looking for people who are you're good at organising, quite like talking to all sorts of people. So you, you're a caller, you've got your older person to call, but you've also got then, you know, say half a dozen callers who would be in your team. So we're looking for kind of team leaders. And we've had lots of people sign up to be callers, but we haven't had as many as we'd like of big team leaders. So if there's anybody who likes the idea of, organizing a group and being their point of contact then we love those coordinators and we love callers and the other thing is you know older people I mean let older people know we're here because we don't like missing out on older people and we do know that it it, that's the complex bit it's you know you can't stick a poster up and say are you extremely lonely and just let them know that there's somebody there who'd actually really value hearing about them and, and getting to know them and you know we're all lonely in lockdown so it's a lovely opportunity to add to our networks
2: Absolutely. So, Meryl, where can we find your website? We are
3: reengage, all one word, no dashes, no nothing. reengage dot org dot uk.
2: And if we want to find you on Twitter or, or anything like that,
3: reengage on Twitter. You we're quite noisy on Twitter. We're noisy on Facebook. We're lovely on Instagram.
2: <laughs> we like noise at Standard Issue. We're a big fan of so, noise. So yeah,
3: no, lots and lots of stuff on there. Yeah.
2: Excellent, Meryl. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. It was lovely to meet you. Thank you very much.
2: Hello, I'm journalist and
5: folk superfan Hazel Davis, and I had a chat with Dr. Faye Heald, folk musician and musicologist, about how coronavirus is affecting the live music industry and what musicians are doing to get through it. So, hi, Faye. Times are really difficult for music performers at the moment. What has been the biggest impact on you as a performer and the people around you?
4: Gigs just disappearing very quickly. No warning of it, it just mm. just disappeared. The way that people spend their time, the way they live their lives just changed in a heartbeat.
5: Did you have gigs kind of booked really, really far ahead that suddenly were cancelled or was it sort of incremental? Were they sort of like trickling in, cancelling here and there?
4: The cancellations trickled in and then... There were some different waves of it. So there were the immediate ones. And then I got a tour booked in September. And most of those gigs are still there. But one oh, okay. cancelled because other gigs were rescheduled we was supposed to be happening in the spring, and they got rescheduled to the autumn.
5: Oh, so you got bumped, kind of, in favour of them.
4: Exactly. Yeah, not not necessarily in the venue that I was in, but in the city, some larger gigs were going on, and they felt that the competition was going to be too high, so they dropped oh, my gig. Gosh. So it's just there's lots of knock-on things going on, and whether those gigs will even go ahead now, I don't know. So it's been a busy time for the agents.
5: Yeah. Wow. So how are you dealing with that as an individual performer? What are you, have you got anything in place to cope with this, or are you all uh, currently just standing there going ah or have you had that phase now
4: really difficult I'm releasing an album at the moment in all this and so that's difficult because obviously you hang your album on a tour and performances and mm. things and that's the whole industry is scheduled so there's the questions of, well, do you just not release your album and then just sit on it? But yeah. until when and what's going on? So yeah, having to work with the record labels as well as live industry, um, and it's just affecting everything.
5: Give us a bit of a plug for the album, then. That, so it's it's being released, has just been released. What's what what's the status of the album right now?
4: So the album is finished, recorded, mm-hmm. um, going for mixing. The sleeve design is all finished, so it's kind of ready to go. But labels need it at least three months before release date to get through the media channels and things. And so it was due for release at uh, a festival in July. Right. But the festival got cancelled, mm-hmm. and music distribution has just disappeared as well. So Amazon, for example, have stopped taking physical copies of albums because they're focusing on home products uh, that are uh, going so, yeah, the distributor's have been really hit. where you might think that that wouldn't really make any difference, but obviously that's been a problem. So, the label wouldn't release in July, so that. so we pushed the release date back to September. Okay. But I've announced the release, so it's on sale, but it's not available till September.
5: Can you give us a plug? Tell us what it's called.
4: It's called Rackline, and it's an album which has grown out of a project called Modern Fairies, which was about looking at the space between the physical known world and other things that maybe we don't know so much about, like ghosts and fairies and talking animals and things like that. So how, how, those, how we make sense of problems and things that we're facing within our own lives through interacting with the unknown mythical spaces.
5: Oh, wow. This is kind of part of something that you've worked on a lot, isn't it? The Soundpost singing weekend last year was all around fairies and things, wasn't it? So let's perhaps talk about the initiatives that you do.
4: My career is split <laughs> into three brands, I suppose. So I've got uh, teaching and lecturing at the university. I've got research and producing music and recording and touring. And I've got education and the folk scene, participation in the folk scene, helping people get involved in that. So I do research around that as well. But I also I do a lot of action research methods. So putting things on, testing out, trying to get people involved, seeing what works, what doesn't work, trying something else. So Soundpost is an organisation that sort of fronts that really. And we put lots of kinds of events on to try and get people into folk music.
5: And presumably that the work that you do with them has been massively impacted the, the, the live aspect of that at least.
4: It has, the live aspect's been hugely impacted, mm-hmm, but it, it's prompted some new ways of working, which is brilliant. So, I've got a PhD student who runs kids' youth music groups and adult music groups, so you sort of after school weekly clubs. Obviously, they stopped meeting in the flesh, but she really quickly turned it into a Google Classrooms environment, and they still meet every week on Zoom, and she gives them work to do, and mm-hmm. it, she's maintained that community brilliantly online. And I've set up a new online singing session because all the folk clubs and everything have stopped. There was a huge wave when the lockdown came of people, uh, professional musicians going online and doing gigs and sharing music. Mm. But I was thinking about all those people that do it as a hobby and as a a way of expressing themselves and a a social activity Mm. rather than a professional performance activity and that they were getting left out Mm. in those early stages. So yeah, I run a, a weekly session on online through soundpost as well and trans on tuesday which is a twitter storm event uh, so it's on tuesdays and we, we sing songs on a theme and that's had people from all over east coast west coast america canada england ireland scotland wales probably not quite sure but i think so anyway from all over the place people are missing singing and sharing their voices and that's so well, that's a positive that soundpost being able to adapt to it and create things to help people
5: What's different about it? Obviously, it's not the same as being in in a room with other people. What's different? Is there anything better about doing it online?
4: The social side of it, because I was thinking a lot of this is about singing together and being with people. Uh, Obviously, with time lag and stuff like that, Mm. singing together online is not something that is (laughs) possible. And everyone's putting out these big sort of compilation orchestras and stuff, which is great. But it's all pre-recorded. They're not playing together. It's not possible. But what I found so beautiful is so everyone takes it in turns to sing and you've got everybody else muted. But when they're singing chorus songs, everyone else's mouths are going up and down. Mm -hmm. You've just got the visual of a load of goldfish singing along at home. I thought that that would be weird and that people wouldn't want to do that. And it might even increase the sense of isolation. But people seem to love it and and, and they're doing it. You can see them heartily singing out. It's incredible.
5: Something that I, I was thinking about is that there's been so much folk music, oh, no, live music, not just folk music, so much live music online so there's so many concerts which has been absolutely fantastic but i can see anybody that i love now most of the bands and artists that i love i can just watch online i don't need to go anywhere i don't need to go to a folk club and accidentally see somebody else are you worried that that might impact people going to smaller clubs or people going to see artists they might not have ordinarily seen if they can just watch everybody they love at home
4: it's difficult so a lot of stuff is now accessible that wouldn't have been accessible before oh. so If I do an online gig, everybody can see it. Whereas if I play in Scunthorpe, a small demographic are able to get out to that, who are local. So it's increasing things. I've seen people I haven't seen play for years, and it's Mm. really nice. I'm rediscovering people. But the big problem with all the online shows for musicians is that anybody who's got a name, so that the lead singer, the front person, whatever, they can quite easily put something online and do a nice acoustic set from Mm. home. That's brilliant. But musicians covers a huge number of people um, and it's only a really tiny proportion of those people that are the, the big headline acts. Yeah. And obviously it's, it's a lot easier for them to reach the audiences that they already have. And, the, you know, the, the keyboard player at the back who nobody really knows the name of, how are they going to reach audiences and, and keep some money coming in? Mm. I think that's a huge problem. It's great that people are supporting musicians. But it does need a knowledge in that it's only the loudest and, uh, and most media-profiled musicians that are getting it, and, and there's a lot of other kinds of musicians in the world that need support still.
1: Yeah, that's
5: a really good point. I was about to say what can we do, but I don't guess. I guess you don't have the answer to that, do you? Really?
4: There's the recent festival, Front Room Festival, have um, have been good to the because what they did is they they had sort of donations button. And they got loads of great musicians to do stuff. And so everybody paid and they raised loads and loads of money. And so how they did it is that they split their income between the people that performed and also Help Musicians UK, mm-hmm. which is a charity for musicians. The Musicians Union as well, they look out for all musicians, not just the celebrities. and mm-hmm. um, so the way that people can help is actually going to those kinds of organizations who, who are looking after everybody, not just the, yeah, the the people that are shouting loudest.
5: Okay, so hopefully hopefully when when this is all over they people it will start to recover. Do you feel like music is more important than ever? I'd I certainly feel that as a music lover.
4: I think it's interesting how the important things have come to the surface. Obviously health has been really important, access to food and supermarkets has been important and home cooking has been really important and entertainment has been mm. vital, you know, exercise as well. Obviously that's been a big narrative going on. So exercise, health, eating and entertainment are, are the key things to life is mm. what I've sort of realised from this lockdown. And obviously music fits into that entertainment category. If, if we didn't have musicians, we wouldn't have all these TV shows and theme tunes and, mm-hmm. and stuff going on. So I don't know quite how they think not supporting the arts can help a society because clearly entertainment is a vital part of existence.
5: Do you think, therefore, that actually now we've all realised this, things will change? Kind of, you, There might be a kind of surge towards live events when this is all over, if this is ever over. <laughs>
4: I would love that. Sadly, I don't think the government sees those priorities at the moment in the UK, at least. It'd be really interesting to see how different countries prepare their recovery packages, I suppose, for after this. Um, I know New Zealand is getting loads of great press of how they're dealing with stuff, and culture is one of their big focuses for regeneration and renewal after this, rather than commerce and uh, the economy. It's about creating those those connections and and human well-being. But the, the... Conservative government we have isn't renowned for supporting hmm. that sort of area. So while people might have realised it, or musicians have always known it, <laughs> yeah. um, whether we get that government support will be key to whether how that creative economy survives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you want to say,
5: particularly that we haven't covered that you think is important?
4: I think the venues is huge because it's really important to make sure that there's musicians there, but we need an infrastructure to perform in as well. And mm-hmm. I've known of several small town-level art centres that are closed. The Globe yeah. Theatre is talking oh about God, going yeah. to yeah. the Albert Hall, because, you know, so if, if that sector isn't supported, there won't be anywhere for musicians and audiences to get together. Musicians are quite rightly pretty concerned about how it would It's not just a case of, oh, the restrictions lifted, we can start going back now. Yeah. It's going to affect this hugely uh, with quite long-term repercussions another thing is for musicians i think they're struggling not just financially but uh, conceptually and i like their, their sense of identity and self is huge so there's a lot of people i've worked with who are they're, they're touring musicians so I, whereas i might tour as a headline you know front person act and um, i might tour two two tours a year and some festivals but the musicians that i work with they also work with several other artists and bands so they might be doing 10, 15 tours a year, mm. and and that is a way of life, that's not just an income, they spend their life on the road, and mm. the, all the work that they do, the music listening they do, the rehearsals, the, the, the time they spend preparing for those gigs as well, is all gone, so the way they spend their time has just completely disappeared. I was talking to a, a bass player that I worked with yesterday, and he was saying he has to keep practicing his bass even though he has no gigs to do because mm. just the physical implications of it there's muscle memory he has huge calluses <laughs> on his hands because he needs those that they yeah. come from bass but if they go and then he starts playing bass again he, he won't be able to play oh. um, so uh, having to maintain a physical a physicality to be able to do the music. It's, yeah, just like sports people, yeah, God, it's... Yeah, and so people thinking it's just about musicians moaning that they don't have any money. It's, it's yeah. not that. It's, it's their sense of selves and their life as a musician. I've heard lots of complaining about musicians sort of taking the mickey about this sort of government payments, uh, payout systems, and how they can get support. And I think this is really important to register. So they, they come as self-employed people, so a lot of them can claim the government benefits or whatever they're calling them yeah. uh, on their take-home income so mm-hmm. a, a, a musician, you'll earn a fee and then a lot of that fee is tax deductible and then the government payout is on the, the non-tax deductible money that you take home yeah mm-hmm. but because these musicians lives have changed so much a, a lot of their expenses and their way of being, because it's all tied up with that lifestyle, yeah. comes under tax deductible expenses. So if they have a workshop, if they have insurance, if they have music consumption demands, those things all come mm. and they are legitimately tax deductible. So their actual, and things like eating, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So if, if somebody's on the road half the year, yeah. all that food is tax deductible. Legitimately, mm. it should be. Mm-hmm. But now suddenly, uh, their, their take home pay is oh, tiny. God, yeah. and to make that- whole thing Mm. so it's not that they have been abusing the system Mm and getting tax breaks where they weren't allowed it's just now that their income it just doesn't match their life Mm. it's a a real struggle for people is there anything good to have come out of all of this musically oh god well there's certainly a flurry of musical activity what i love is that people are needing to express through music still and that came out very quickly that yeah. people were really quickly making stuff and sharing it online. Mm. So it's brought out the, the value of music for people, to, uh, participating in music and doing their own music. I think that's great that because of all the tech that we've got now, people have still been able to keep in touch and do that. I don't know how we would have survived this mm. 20, 30 years ago. It would don't have been if. a very bleak picture.
1: Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Alison McGregor, MD, author of brilliantly brilliant new book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. Thank you for joining me, Alison. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Given everything that's going on in the world and the profession that you work in, it would be remiss for me not to ask how you were and how your colleagues were at this quite extraordinary time. Thank you. It is very
6: extraordinary. There's no precedent. So we are been doing what everyone else has been doing, which is figuring along as we go. One of the things that we're finding now is that we're grateful that our volume of non-COVID-related patients are increasing. The messaging of stay home was seemed to be so strong that we were not seeing our usual heart attacks and strokes and people with chronic illnesses. And so I think they're starting to feel safe enough to to come to receive emergency care. So
1: we're, we're happy that they're back. Yeah, we've had a change of government messaging in the last couple of days here, which has gone from protect the NHS to control the virus and there's been a lot of theories about why that might be but but one of them is that it's because people have become scared of going to the doctor and they'd like people not to be scared of going to the doctor because obviously if you're ill you need to go and see someone you're not taking up a space because I think that's part of the problem isn't it not just catching it but the idea that you're just taking up room if you go and use the health service at the moment.
6: Right, exactly. So there's fear that they're going to contract the virus just by walking into, it is a high risk area for that purpose. So I understand that. But we see so many people, especially in, I, a, I work in a level one trauma center, and we just see so many people every day that have serious injuries and serious illnesses and lots of acute and chronic conditions that require healthcare. So we were just wondering, you know, how are they doing at home? So I I think just the fact that things are, are relaxing a little bit
1: and people feel safe enough to get checked out. We're talking of COVID, since you've written your book, an interesting statistic has arisen and this ongoing crisis has highlighted the importance of sex disaggregated statistics and studies because this is a disease that's affecting men more than it's affecting women. Do you think that could turn out to be a very positive thing? for how we look at the health of men and women as separate entities in the future?
6: I certainly hope so. It is a very dramatic representation when you find that men are having two times the mortality rate than women uh, with uh, COVID-19 serious illness. So what I think is hopefully going to happen is that the society and the medical um, institutions are going to realize that this is not just a women's health issue. Yeah, It's a broader issue than that. And um, it takes realizing that taking into account biological sex and gender identity when doing research and when understanding disease, that that is going to help both men and women. So I think it's just been sort of siloed as a women's health issue. And now we have these new statistics, and they're quite dramatic. And um, all of a sudden, there's this uh, realization and this rush to study this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the same argument I always give people for feminism is if we become an equal society, the benefit is for everybody. Exactly. I agree. And I think that, you know,
6: even with that, when you think of one of the reasons why we've been so male based has been that doctors were male, researchers were male, and men inherently think of uh, the world from a male point of view. Yeah, And so this just is also an opportunity for women to be encouraged to join fields of science, technology, engineering and and mathematics, the STEM fields, because that will do twofold. It will increase the opportunity for women to be successful in those fields, but then also diversity will help our understanding of
1: broader issues related to health. It's interesting what you say about, about training, because one of the first things you know in your book, in the introduction, is when you said you wanted to go into women's health, everybody assumed, even people in the medical profession assumed you meant you wanted to be an OBGYN.
6: That was really the start of this for me, when I started to explore that, that reason. I was always interested in women's rights and women's uh, issues and... I loved the word feminism in college. I just thought that this just, it all made so much sense to me. And then I had to really focus on all of the hurdles of becoming a physician. And so when it was finally my time to choose an area of research study and I said that okay well, I'm going to do something to help women everybody did think that I meant reproductive issues and so I was going to be relegated to doing all the pelvic exams in the emergency department I
1: think that's really common isn't it it's what Liz Lemon yeah. calls the swimsuit area that's what people yes, think exactly. that women are yeah
6: the, the bikini medicine, and that's when I really I started to think why why is that the case, and so I went back to how we really started to gain our evidence and our research and our methods, and when you looked at those methods, there was this time where. There was a paternalistic view for protecting women of childbearing age. There were a couple instances where women were given medication and it resulted in horrible birth defects. So there was like, okay, women of childbearing age are going to be excluded from all studies. And then the researchers at that time thought that that was. pretty convenient because now they don't have to worry about fluctuating hormone levels in their studies because men are pretty standard testosterone levels. There's some variations throughout the lifetime and throughout the day, but it's not as cyclic as in women. So research really began to focus on men and they were researching things like cardiovascular disease and stroke and cancer and all of these really important things in men. And then the one thing they really couldn't study in men was obstetrics and gynecology and menopause and menstrual cycle and some breast health so then those things were studied in women but what happened was it trapped all the efforts into providing medical care for women into only those issues
1: Mm. you tell an anecdote at the start of this book which i have to say i found absolutely terrifying about a young woman julie who was having a heart attack and was in the process of being sent home from the emergency room, having a heart attack. She had a history of anxiety and other explanations were being thrown up. Now, as someone that has been up to hospital having an anxiety attack myself, that's why I have to say I find this particularly terrifying. How do I stop that happening to me?
6: Okay, so one of the reasons why that is happening to women is because the education and training of physicians has been based on studies on men. And so when we see a patient and we are concerned that they may be having a heart attack or they present with particular symptoms, we are putting them into a box, a pattern recognition. We have been taught that heart attacks present like crushing chest pain, an elephant sitting on your chest. And so when a woman comes in and it doesn't present that way, and it's a little different and it's short of breath and she seems a little anxious and we don't know what to do with that because that's not what a heart attack we were told looks like. So then what do we do? We look in the patient's chart and we see, well, what other issues does this patient have? And many women have the diagnosis of anxiety in their medical charts. And so that ends up being something that is perhaps convenient, but also it's supposed to be the diagnosis of exclusion after you rule out lots of other more anatomical or physiologic conditions. But instead it ends up being a convenient diagnosis to make And I think, like you said, you know, women can have anxiety and they can still also have a heart attack. Yeah. What I try to tell women is is that, yes, if you have some concern and you want to seek medical care, you may be anxious about that concern. And that's okay. Just acknowledge that. That and say, okay, I'm anxious. I have to leave work now. I have to um, figure out this and that. And so now women start to think a lot and they become anxious. And to put that in a frame of mind of, okay, this is unusual. I have to go see the doctor. And then feel free to bring an advocate. I think having a friend or a family member there to say, you know, she doesn't normally act like this or this isn't her anxiety mm-hmm. um, really helps Put it into the framework. Women should be very open with their physicians. They should say, I am concerned because I looked this up online and it could be a heart attack or it could be a blood clot. Be open about what your concerns are, um, even if it's just, I just want to feel better. I'm sick of going to all these doctors and not getting a good diagnosis. I just want a note for work because I need, you know, need some time to seek out a specialist. The more open and honest you are, I, I believe that ultimately doctors
1: want to help you, and
6: and they and they could use your help.
1: While it's obviously true that the mental and the physical are linked, is this just part of a long trail of how women are treated that goes back to the diagnosis of hysteria, this idea that women are entirely governed by emotion and irrational behaviour as opposed to sense and logic and, and stoicness?
6: Hysteria has been kind of haunting us women for for many, many decades. And yes, it implies that it's all in her head. The way that I view that is we haven't studied the specific physiology of women enough to understand what is actually going on. Women are different from their DNA on up. And so when we don't know what the diagnosis is, Oftentimes, a psychiatric one, or you know, of anxiety, or just it being, uh, you know, something that we can't put our finger on, ends up being what is communicated to women. And so, there's no other concrete diagnosis to give. So, I think that the more that we study women, the more that we'll have a better understanding of things like what actually causes fibromyalgia. Why do women have all of these pain syndromes? And TMJ, an irritable bowel. These are all conditions that we actually don't really know what the cause is because they're not as common in men. And so they haven't gained enough
1: attention. You, you actually make a point in this that while doctors are quite keen to acknowledge that there might be a difference, they often show a complete lack of curiosity as to what that difference might be, which seems unusual given that I would say that medical people seem naturally curious by by definition.
6: Yes, I find that now, the more conversations I have with actual healthcare providers, there is this desire to. Be accurate and to deliver high quality care. So once it's framed in that perspective, I believe that there will be a change. But it's a very complicated system to change because there's the element of research. And so the researchers have to understand how important it is to enroll both men and women and to analyze the data based on sex. And then the educators of medical schools and universities have to understand that they need to integrate this information throughout the curricula. And then that will be able to translate into clinical practice. So there are a lot of elements that go into the healthcare system. Colleagues and myself have been working on each of those elements to help make a change. And I think what I wanted with my book is to empower women to be part of that change.
1: I actually highlighted a brilliant quote from you here. If you are a woman, you are at greater risk of misdiagnosis, improper treatment and complications in common medical situations. To ensure you receive the treatment you deserve, you need to understand how you're body behaves differently from a man's. That
6: is it. It's There's no longer the dictatorship of you see a doctor, that doctor tells you what to do, you do that. Physicians spent a lot of time becoming trained and to be an expert consultant for you and your life. So I really encourage women to take ownership of the accuracy of their medical record, pull it all together. So that way, when you seek different specialists or you're, you're navigating the system, instead of redoing lots of expensive and maybe risky tests, have a very accurate record of your medications and what testing you've undergone, and then also ask Questions: When you are prescribed a medication, you should ask um, your doctor. Was this medication? Is this the dose based on me as a woman? Should I change the dose based on my menstrual cycle? What are the side effects that I can expect as a woman? And and have that dialogue because what you're going to do is that doctor may not know those answers, but yeah. what they will be prompted to do is look them up and have a conversation with you. And then you've helped the awareness uh, domino effect to take place.
1: Yeah. If we go back to the the story about Julie briefly, the thing that it turned out was wrong with her, which was her main artery had a blockage in it, is a condition that's called the widow maker. And that seems instantly striking that the decision has already been made from the name of who is going to be suffering from that. Does that suggest that medicine is institutionally sexist or is that unfair for me to say.
6: I don't think that's unfair. I think it is. And it goes back to that reason of who has been the driver of uh, this language and of of the research and, and who the decision makers, they have been men. I really don't think that it's intentional. I think it's just the way that it's been structured. Women have been considered to be a subgroup of men. Men have been the the primary person and primary person to, to research. And then it's like, oh, well, let's look at the subgroup of women or we'll look at subgroup of race or socioeconomic status. And I really think we need to turn this on our head and say that there's two biologically different human beings. There's the male and the female. And then we can look at subgroups. And then we can look at ethnicity and cultural differences and how that affects health. But we're talking about DNA here and... I don't think it was necessarily deliberate because many female physicians and female researchers were also using yeah. men as, as the baseline. It was just the way that things were done. And so I think now by acknowledging and recognizing that you know, these differences are important um, will be you know the motives for our future. There's been a
1: lot of books in recent years, uh, say, for example, Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women. Do you feel part of a movement and a push to change this?
6: Absolutely. I have been studying this for over 10 years. And I can honestly say that I feel as though that change is now inevitable. Like I said, it's a lot of moving parts. But the more awareness, um, like that book, which is, which is incredible because it shows you just how broad, uh, you know, I focus on the medical care and research and health, and, but, but really the, the male view of the world is part of all of our society and our culture. I think that we're ready for a new revolution. Uh, we had a major movement for women's reproductive health. And so I think that now we're ready. Women have band together to raise these issues. And I don't think we should stop until we've hit a you know on autopilot, um, which I do feel as though that we are. And I think the issues like COVID-19 are a great time to highlight how
1: important these things are for everyone. Absolutely. It's a matter of life or death. It, it really is. I, I have a friend, she was, she was actually a doctor herself, who, after years of appointments and, and consultations, was diagnosed as having health anxiety, which, I mean, that's a nice way of saying hypochondria, isn't it? And it wasn't. It was cancer. And she died. I don't know if that was because she was a woman. I, I, I don't know, but it feels in the back of my head. It screams that if that was a man that had gone in, maybe his socialisation would have been different in as much as he would have pushed for his rights and said, I want those tests, I want this done. But there was a real consequence at the end of that and that was that she lost her life. As the woman who was about to walk out with a heart attack would have if things had gone that way too... Absolutely. Life and death, especially what I
6: see. I work in an emergency department. I see the entire spectrum of illness and disease and it's it's countless just with each person what the difference between their biological sex and gender has a play either in the medication dosing or the side effects or missing a heart attack or having a seizure because your menstrual cycle lowered the concentration of your medication these things are endless and and they're out there and uh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend and the examples
1: are just they're, they're too numerous yeah they, they sadly are Although your book, I'm sure, will do the world of good. It is a brilliant read. Thank you so much for chatting to us and for putting your back into what is a, an enormous amount of what I would describe as really interesting but slightly terrifying facts. Um, it's true, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I
6: hope the ending has a little bit more, um, you know, uplifting uh, yeah. piece because I think we all do have a role and, and just thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I could talk about this forever and so I appreciate having the the chance to discuss this with you
1: if people want to know more your book is obviously all good bookshops i and coming out on audiobook as well which is great are you on twitter are you up for a conversation yes. on
6: Twitter? if people are
1: yeah so for more information
6: i do have a website it's alison dot and then also you feel free to connect with me on twitter it's
1: at mcgregor md brilliant thank you so much for your time alison this has been brilliant thank you so much
6: you play ball like a girl
1: go on do
2: one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we tot up our endorsements and feel frankly a little short changed as we discuss all things women's sport So, first up, some details of the impending annual Forbes Athletes Rich List, that's a bit of a mouthful, came to light last week, and the full list is set to be revealed this week, so unfortunately this is going to be slightly limited information. The headline news for our purposes, however, is that bright young thing Naomi Osaka has replaced Serena Williams as the highest paid female athlete on said list. She comes in at number 29 with a very healthy take home of 30.7 million quid last year. That's 1.15 million more than Serena and four places higher than her on the list. Osaka is, I don't know, she's probably the most well-known and successful Japanese athlete when you're talking about sort of global fame and she's done very well out of the now somewhat ill-fated Olympics because she's essentially become the poster girl of it. The good news is that her earnings smashed the previous record set by a female athlete which is £24.4 million by Maria Sharapova back in 2015. What I would be willing to bet on being the bad news is that I, I suspect there are no more women on that list, but we'll see, we'll see. While we're on the subject of the Olympics, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach cast a bit of doubt over the games in an interview last week. Speaking to BBC Sport, Bach said that, as you would imagine, the job of reorganising the Olympics is quite a big one, with three to five thousand people employed as part of the organising committee. It's not very precise, is it? Three to five thousand, anyway. That's what he said. Not me. And he also said you could not employ such a large number of people forever. Therefore, if the Olympics cannot take place next summer, as they are now scheduled to, it becomes increasingly hard to see them going ahead at all at this stage. However, he refused to say whether or not it would be necessary to have found a vaccine in order for the Games to go ahead. It was also unclear about whether or not the Games could take place behind closed doors, though this wouldn't be his preference, he said, because the Games unite fans and all that. They also generate a very healthy amount in ticket revenue, so yes, I imagine they are very keen to get bombs on seats. But also, I struggle a bit with the idea of events behind closed doors. It does clearly detract from the atmosphere a little bit. Another piece of bad news, sorry guys. As we chatted about in the last journey off the blocks, it's now been announced officially that the Women's Super League season has ended with immediate effect as of Monday. The Premier League and the Championship just allowed their teams to begin training again. I'm not against the leagues being called off at all. I'm actually kind of for it so long as we can find a way to keep Charlton Athletic in the championship and save them from relegation. But it needs to happen in an equitable way. We can't be in a position where the women's league gets left behind again. And it's sort of shocking slash not shocking at all that we're so quick to discard it when we're so frantic about getting the men's leagues back up and running again That said, individual teams will certainly have had input into the decision, so it's not all about damning the man at this stage. I think just something to be aware of. Okay, have I depressed you sufficiently? Let me coax you out of that pit of despair with news from women's cricket. First up, the England and Wales Cricket Board, or the ECB, announced last week that it will award regional retainers to up to 24 female domestic cricketers to help them through the Coronavirus pandemic. Now, the ECB had intended to introduce 40 full time contracts this summer, though that has been delayed. However, the intention is still to go ahead with these as planned later in the year. Doubling our good news tally for the week. ECB's Director of Cricket, Claire Connor, also said last week that she was hopeful that England could host a tri series featuring India and South Africa later this year. The women's team are due to return to training around June 22nd, about a month after the men's team. Well, this is all a bit emotional because that's all for me for this week and for quite a few weeks because I am off to birth a child who's probably going to be an athlete herself if her late-night river dancing is anything to go by. I've got a few interviews tucked away for you while I'm off, including one with Joe Pavey and another with Asha Philip, and I'm sure there will be contributions from other women in the world of sport while I'm away. Ooh. If you want to find out how my early days of coaching are going or just witness me slowly lose my mind, you can do that on Twitter and Instagram where I am at InspiroGen and at GenOff. Two N's, two F's, respectively. And I'll be back with more women's sport in a little while. (laughs)
0: Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster of a film... Sorry, what disaster film did we watch uh-huh.
1: this week? This week we watched 1959's Plan 9 from Outer Space, which people have possibly heard of because it is generally regarded to be the worst film ever made. Made by cult director, and when I say cult, I mean, you know, people who love shit films love Ed Wood. Yeah, Also, people who love Tim Burton love Edward as well because, obviously, Tim Burton made a biopic of Edward, which a lot of the stuff about the filming of Plan 9 from Outer Space is in that. So people possibly know more about it. It's one of those films, a bit like, you know, with Ulysses, where people know loads of shit about it, but they've never read it. Yes. It's kind of the same with this. People know loads of stuff about Plan 9 from Outer Space, but have rarely seen it. I have because I've got a younger brother who was kind of obsessed with shit horror films in his teenage years which a lot of young boys are so I have actually seen it before I have to say from the top I think I could have had a huge amount of fun watching this had I not been in such a desperate rage about the (laughs) state of the world Plan Plan 9 looks like a decent plan right now, to be honest with you. Absolutely. I did wonder whether Plan 10 is, because obviously the Plan 9 doesn't work, whether Plan 10 was to put a load of snakes on an aeroplane <laughs> and see if they could um, take over the world that way. I'd tell you, Hannah, but I've been muzzled by army brass. That was my favourite line. <laughs> I've actually got that written down. There was a couple, I'm muzzled by army brass. Now toddle off and fly your <laughs> flying machine, darling. That was another great one you know in the old days credits used to come up at the start and you used to wonder what the point of them was at the start rather than at the end but with this i think it's so you know this film definitely did have a script editor contrary to anything (laughs) you may believe for the rest of this did have a special effects guy but i don't know they called in sick that day or something it had no budget though did it it was like it just the money he found down the back of his sofa it but also, its, its star was already dead. I mean, this is the most famous thing about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Bella Lugosi yeah. was already dead before it started filming. Basically, Edward had managed to persuade Bella Lugosi to film some kind of generic... You know in BoJack Horseman where they haven't got a script, so Diane decides it's good to start getting them to film going, <gasps> just in case they can use it and fit it in, yeah. in other stuff in the future? Well, that's basically what he did. He filmed Bella Lugosi doing stuff. Then got some money to make a film. Bela Lugosi had already died. He managed to persuade people to be in it by saying Bela Lugosi was in it and then managed to make the script work so that all of the stock footage he'd shot of Lugosi could be fitted into this, which is why whenever you see Lugosi, he's on his own. Except in scenes where they couldn't avoid having him in it, in which case he got his wife's chiropractor to put his cloak up against his face and pretend to be Bela Lugosi in those shots. It's just a chiropractor in a cape. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Bela Lugosi is the one who's always doing the same thing. He is the guy that dresses like he lives in a castle but actually lives in a suburban bungalow. I fully thought... Which apparently is is tall... I can't remember what his name is. Oh, the Swedish wrestler guy. Yeah, it's his house that they actually just shot
2: that in. Um, I one hundred percent thought Bella Lugosi was a woman, sorry. That's no. vampiric.
1: That-
0: right. Whoops.
1: And the question there is, what the fuck goes on with her
0: waist? It's so waspish. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Small. If she was married to Bella Lugosi, I mean I know that we've done age difference before, but fucking hell he's dead. That's that's quite quite a big <laughs> difference there. But he, yeah. she is a lot younger than the old man, which is Bella Lugosi.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, by way of a script, there's an old man at a funeral because there has to be because that's what was shot when Bela Lugosi was alive. It's also why he doesn't speak because, obviously, they didn't know what the plot was going to be. He's at his wife's funeral and then his wife, Vampira, is risen from the grave by aliens and then he dies and then he is risen from the grave by aliens and then the guy that goes to investigate it dies and is risen from the grave by aliens who are having a plan. To take over the world. Now, on the goody side, there is a pilot who we see in the cockpit, which looks for all the world like Dorothy Perkins' changing room. <laughs> um, <laughs> although, at one point, the woman has to come through the, through the curtain and she makes a right meal of coming through that curtain. And you know that's one of those famous moments where he should have said, cut, do it again, but he didn't. He just ploughed on through. And so they see spaceships. And so he somehow how ends up wrapped up with this. He lives with his wife. Paula. Um, what a name. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of death by screaming in this. You get a couple of grave diggers. They go to go dig the grave. And then a vampire appears. She's in a different shot and also in a different time zone because it's much darker where she is than where they are. <laughs> yeah. But this is what the joys of Edward are. You hear a scream and you see her and she's managed to kill them from, I'd say three fridges distance away from them <laughs> there's a voiceover which is very heavy duty it's there to cover up for the fact that obviously Lugosi isn't talking in parts but it also just basically does a lot of exposition And exposition that the characters then do themselves there are bits where they turn up he explains it and then they turn up and explain it to somebody else isn't
0: the narrator um, Chiswell he was a psychic as well though so he's got that very yes authoritative slightly spooky voice and he tells you about events that are going to take place in the future yet we should feel yeah. sorry for the people they have already happened
1: to it's very weird yeah. he ends the film by saying can you prove that it didn't happen and i thought <laughs> well that could be the same for every film his voice <laughs> reminds me of you know the guy in carnival that used to say welcome to church of the airwaves yes. that's the kind of uh, yes. like tone exactly. that he has maybe it was him it's just so shit. The spaceships—they constantly refer to being as the shape of a cigar, where in fact they look like early fidget spinners. They keep shooting people in the kneecaps in it. <laughs> Nobody actually ever fires a gun directly at someone. And the cardboard graves are an absolute oh, like delight. Delight <laughs> when they all come out of the crypt. And there's about 40 of them. It's like an early TARDIS. About 40 of them come out of it and it's just a cardboard box.
0: So many funerals at night
1: time as well. It's
0: very weird. It's
1: when they've made the Star of David's to go on, the graves, And it's just two triangles just stuck on top of each other. That's how I made stars when
0: I was four.
1: The spaceships are an absolute lesson in perspective. Those spaceships are small and those spaceships, well, they must be far away because they're still really small, even though (laughs) they're like hanging over... The grave. I mean, there are bits where the actor clearly doesn't follow the stage directions. The pilot leaves his wife on her own and she says, I'll be sure to lock the door. And then just walks off and totally doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and forgets to do it. There's a bit where the guy's trying to start a car. He picks her up. You know, when he rescues Paula and he picks her up and then he gets in a car. And he's obviously trying to start a car to drive away and they want to indicate that the car won't start, right? So they've got the car noise going, rah, rah, the car won't start. But what they've got him doing is just turning the wheel Because like <laughs> as we know, that's how you can start a car. Even Jen knows um, that isn't how you start a car and she doesn't drive. There's a bit where they get turned off because they, these people have been reanimated by aliens who are trying to take over the world by raising the dead. I think they're and, trying to save the world. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, they're going to try to save the universe because they think that we will destroy the world because and we're to in right. a nuclear bomb and stuff. I mean, Fair. yeah, more news as it happens. Like, Vampira manages to turn off and be still. That guy is all over the place. He's still looking. He's still... I like that he is just solely referred to as the un <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's an excellent bit where the cops turn up to, to investigate what's happened in the graveyard and the detective is given a gun as a prop and he obviously doesn't know what to do with it and at points he's scratching himself with it it's a loaded gun (laughs) then he just points it at people while he's talking it is absolutely ridiculous may I
0: share my favourite little bit of ridiculous Uh, it's when they tap on the spaceship and it goes boing boing and he goes I've never heard metal make that noise before
1: (laughs) lovely. There's nothing I can say that hasn't been said before about Plan 9 from Outer Space except that I wish I'd been in a slightly better mood when I watched it because I think I would have had more fun. I probably would have more jokes. Because it's entertaining, I think it's fair to say that it's
0: It's one of those that is so bad, it's good. I didn't hate it. I wasn't like, oh God, this is awful. Why are we watching it? I was quite entertained by all of the the miss the mishaps that weren't planned by Edward were very entertaining. Yeah. And it's only an hour and 20
1: minutes long. Bonus. Yeah. A slightly less, actually. I think it was like an hour and 18, the one that I watched. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could totally watch this on YouTube if you want to, people. What did you think,
2: Jen? I mean, I didn't really take any of it in at all, to be honest. Um, it it sort of went a bit over my head. All I really like noticed... Like a tiny slash faraway flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> all I really noticed was his wife talk like that in that way that they do back in the old days when they make films um which <laughs> resting on his chest
1: quite a lot yeah there's a lot of her just resting on his chest
2: i'll lock the door like he's like go inside and lock the door and she's like i'll do it when you've gone and that's really that's like that's kind of like the peak of and then totally doesn't do it no silly yeah, I did. It allows know.
0: the chiropractor in a cape to get into her room, <laughs> walk to one side of the bed, and then she walks quite slowly out of the room screaming and is
1: fine. I don't really and know. Thinks, no, and then thinks, "I know where I'll go—the graveyard. The graveyard." Why not? That's always ended well. I did like the all why of the not? houses. Because that's the only other set
0: we've got. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to have to go there. That's why all the houses have a view of the graveyard, which is what you look for when you're buying property.
2: Yeah, they talked about it. A bit, didn't they? As well, in I think in the cockpit, didn't the woman say, "Don't you live near the graveyard?" or something like that? And they had like a, a vague conversation
1: about it. After she'd taken twenty minutes to get through the curtain,
0: <laughs> maybe that was the only real thing on set. That curtain, everything else was just paper. I, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't absorb a lot of it.
2: To be, to be honest with you, it, it didn't command my attention perhaps as well as it could have
1: done. Again, I was quite livid last night, so. There's, there's a funny bit where... I mean, I feel you, Jen. There's a funny bit where the guy... He's called... Everyone's got a stupid name in this, but he's a, his is actually his real name and it's the most stupid of all, Dudley Man Love. He <laughs> says... <laughs> he says, when he's explaining why they're doing it, and then his partner, who is also a woman who talks in that voice, she... Oh, the human aliens. Get, the alien yeah, humans. Yeah, the alien humans. She tries to get involved... And he tells her no. And then he explains that women aren't allowed to get involved on, on their planet. Because, and I thought, well, they're not really, really allowed to get involved on this planet either, <laughs> is <they? laughs> it? Like, I mean, I, I, hate, I hate to think that Edward was trying to think he was a feminist because he'd employed two women. <laughs> like three, three women, one of whom didn't speak any words uh, and had a waist that I could conceivably fit my fingers around. Yeah. It was fucked up.
0: It was, it was fucked up. Quite.
1: I don't think I've done very well on my bingo sheets, guys. No, I I mean... I don't think I've got any for a while. I think I have zero. Yeah, I've done terribly as well. I mean, largely because this kind of predates disaster films. I've got one. Okay, I have... A potential... One. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you had us on tenor hooks there. Oh, no, potential two. A potential two, I think
0: okay my one is mid-disaster punch-up which was the hilarious fight in the spaceship where in the end everything catches
1: fire and it literally is the end well no wonder because it was made of cardboard i know (laughs) it's well easy to burn i mean i i've got i don't think i can have cassandra ignored because he was covered up rather than ignored wasn't he he was made to sign the official secrets act yeah so i'm not i'm not sure if i could have that it's all going so well until I forgot to lock the door when I told my husband I'd lock the door. Yeah, no she does survive it. Okay, and... Oh, yeah, she does survive it, so it's a no. In that case, I've got one, screaming cowardice. I shall run to the graveyard. Right, I've so it was... It was. Jen's it was, got none. It was a I've great got one,
2: tally. if I can have analogy of the world rather than analogy of Brexit, and that is just what the fuck.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So it was a draw. We've ended on a draw. A one score draw.
4: Standard issue for all women.